Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR161R32, Economic Analysis and Bureaucratic Attack on Church. From the Easy Chair, Excellent Colloquies on Various Subjects. This is R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair Number 121, March the 28th, 1986. This evening I have with me James Flanagan, who is a commodity broker in Los Angeles. Jim, it's good to have you with us. Nice to be here, Rush. One of the things that has been uh, quite different in the 80s has been this. Up until now, all your conservative uh, economic forecasters have been uh, forecasting almost identically one with the other. But in the 80s, it is uh, almost amusing how much they vary and how little uh, agreement there is between your classical economic perspectives of the various economists. What's the reason for that? Well, there really is a diversity of opinion. Uh, you see it most prevalently in my business in the newsletters and professional analysts. And if it seems like the professionals are pretty confused, just imagine how the people that read these newsletters feel. They really feel like they're, uh, many of them get two, three newsletters and get these diverse opinions and they do not know what direction to take. On the one hand, they may be getting an inflationist, giving an inflationary argument. And then, of course, there's the deflationists, which have, uh, have capitalized on some of the markets and not capitalized on other of the markets. So it really is a time that independence from economic thought and thinking for yourself is so vital, uh, particularly in these markets. And I find the people that are dealing with the markets from the standpoint of listening, listening to the professionals are running into real problems because it's hard to stay with the professional's advice when he's right some of the time and wrong some of the time and many times they run into the problem of following one individual for positioning a market and then another from getting out of a market so in terms of the market people uh... it's easy for me to speak from in terms of economists i have not listened to too many of them uh, and that really is the nature of my business. I'm a technician as far as the markets are concerned. I don't deal so much with the fundamentals. Uh, and to describe that, I don't look at statistics so much, supply and demand things. I simply look at charts and look for repetitive patterns. And then I feel very comfortable in a certain school uh, of analysts there. So you have a lot of diverse opinions and people coming from a lot of different directions. And then, of course, you're in historic markets that are different from anything we've seen uh, for centuries, really, and in the last 15 years have been really unique unto themselves. One of the things that perhaps uh, can be classified as unique is that this is a different kind of inflation since World War II or Roosevelt than ever before in history, a credit inflation. So the economists don't have a track record for that. And no doubt it creates problems for the people in the market. You have uh, been in, involved in television uh, work in connection with the market and also with uh, seminars. What do you find, apart from the desire to make money, is the most common reaction you encounter? Well, as far as, uh, as people getting involved, 
I would say this, that, that one trap that a lot of analysts fall in is the trap of investors saying that this is in a completely different environment and that we're somehow in a unique period of history where all of the classical workings of the economy are no longer effective. And one thing that I've done is tried to go back over history and find similar uh, situations in the past. Much of my research has been looking at similar situations and say, where are the parallels today for previous history? Parallels. And sometimes you go back 60 years, sometimes 120, to see things that are, that are appropriate to the situation. And I found that while the volatility has increased, although that uh, has certainly been um, I think blown out of proportion quite a bit, saying that, that the sheer numbers of, say, the Dow Jones and things like that seem like they are astronomical. They really are similar to situations in the past. So I, I've got to pull back a little bit and just qualify that I don't think the situation has changed much since, say, World War I or World War II. Uh, some of the things like the sophistication of, of uh, you know, credit and the monetization of debt and things like that have changed certain characteristics but by the same token, you're dealing with uh, psychological reactions to market, and you're dealing with the basics of human nature, which is their hopes, fears, greeds. And then that gets you into what is important to people. Uh, many of it, many times people, I think, that enter the market strictly for monetary reasons and no other, run into real problems. They have real problems because if that's the key ingredient to their trading and that's what they're trying to do, well, those hopes and fears are going to be aggravated tremendously. Now, what would you say to a young couple who are facing the economy of the second half of the 80s and are worried as to what they should do? Uh, should they be more conservative? Should they take chances? What do you feel that a young couple uh, should do facing the world of today? It's a little bit difficult uh, from the standpoint that I'm single and I am uh, a high risk taker class type individual. Uh, if I go out and lose everything I have, and I don't intend on doing that, but if I go out and lose everything, it's not going to uh, affect me and certainly I would feel that, well, it's a learning experience and I can come back. So I'm not coming, it, it's tough to put myself in the shoes of a young couple, but there really has to be an independence of thought. They either have to find somebody that they feel competent and confident in, that they can follow almost wholly, or they have to do the work themselves and not necessarily be a trader, because these markets do appear that, well, you have to be a trader, you've got to move in and out of this uh, every six months or every year. You do have to move on a shorter time frame, which may be two to three years and different investments do come into vogue. Right now, the real glamour investments are the stock market, interest-related relate, investments, uh, things of that nature, where had you positioned two, three years ago, you would be reaping the benefits of, of purchasing those markets. And then, of course, the cycle will change where you want to get into asset-related things, such as gold and silver and the various commodities. So you have to shift. If I was working myself, uh, in a capacity other than I am, and I do wear this work full-time, I would have to say, as a couple, uh, you're going to have to align yourself with somebody that you believe in, uh, not only economically speaking, but spiritually and philosophically, and go with them 100% because you can't do the type of work that some people can do. And if you have confidence, you're going to make it, and you're going to make some good money and preserve capital, which is probably the most important thing. 
you and Dan Harris, uh, also of Cal Seton, have been working on some things together. Do you want to tell us a, a little bit about that? Well, <clears throat> briefly, we're on the same track, and I, I have known of Dan Harris through you, Rush, for, uh, for a couple of years now, and we have each been going. I had no idea what Dan Harris was involved in, and uh, approximately four to five months ago, I got this fantastic brainstorm. Maybe I should call this this person. And so I called him uh, and actually had a little inkling about what he was involved in because uh, one person that we have, a friend that we have in common, deals with the same type of market-related research that we do. And having called him, it was uh, very exciting to hear that we are really working on some of the elemental things in our business that are going to just be fabulous. And a lot of this is just really, uh, it, it's dog work and leg work uh, involving getting historical price, uh, historical prices from, you know, years and years back and developing a historic database that says, yes, history repeats. And by knowing what happened in the markets previously, you can get a good handle on what's going to happen in the future. And uh, so we've had some interchange that way. I call him up, I tell him I've got silver prices from 1833. Most people say, big deal. Uh, that's exciting stuff for us. And he called me the other day and said, I've got IBM prices since the beginning of trading in 1915, and I was on cloud 12 for the rest of the day. So it's exciting. And the bottom line on it, it's a love of what we're doing. And I, would, I, I wonder what I would do if I wasn't making any money uh, and capitalizing, you know, monetarily speaking from this. I wonder if I would be getting IBM prices from 1915 just for the sake of getting IBM <laughs> prices since 1915. I, I wonder about that. I don't know, but uh, it's, it's a real joy. And Dan is just a super, super individual, and I haven't had a chance to meet him in person, but I'm really looking forward to well, doing well, so. Well, you'll enjoy meeting him. Dan is super. I have here a chart that Matt, uh, Dan has made of home state <clears throat> mining company shares, prices from... 1919 to 1985. Do you want to comment on this rather dramatic chart? Well, I'll say this. Dan has a real problem. I can see that right now. I mean, who wants home stake prices from 1919? Uh, perhaps he should seek some professional help. But this is the kind of the type of thing that we're doing here. Uh, and essentially what we're looking at since, since gold prices have been fixed, uh, since 1932, I guess it was, until the gold window was closed uh, in 1971. You, we have the problem in the analysis that we do, which is looking for repetitive cycles. We had the problem of determining, well, how can we know what gold did since we only have 15 years of data to go by? How do we know what the cycles are that predominate in the market? And the next best thing that we could figure was, well, let's get a gold stock that goes back that's been on the board for a long time, and I think Homestake's been around since 1879, and see if some of the cycles that, uh, that show up in Homestake may also be uh, usable as far as our analysis in the gold. And the jury's a little bit out on that, but it is helpful, uh, and I think some of the picture comes into focus with the long-term silver prices that we have. So we're doing some unique work uh, that very few people are doing, and the typical trader, say, in commodity futures would look, it, it would, the typical trader would look at six months of price data, believe it or not. They'd go back six months and try to make a, some assertions about what the market is going to do. And in terms of trends and knowing what the trend is, the longer-term yearly cycles, uh, for the analysis we do, it's vital that we have this type of information. And uh, 
it can be extremely profitable. Well, one man wrote a book two, three years ago about uh, gold in which he said that contrary to the common opinion which sees uh, gold as in uh, the best hedge in a time of inflation, he says, however good it may be in a time of inflation, it's even better in a time of deflation. And Dan's chart would indicate something like that because you have something very dramatic here when uh, on February the 8th, 1936, at the depth of depression, when, uh, what was it, something like 16 million were unemployed, home stake shares hit $544 per share. <laughs> and uh, on December 1969, when gold was much higher, $16 per share. Yes. How do you account for that? Well, from a technical standpoint, I haven't gone back and, and looked at what happened in Homestake, specifically whether they had some acquisitions at the time or they they hit the mother load or, or anything like that, so I don't know. But it is interesting. There is the common uh, perception that in order for gold to go up, you have to have inflation. And this chart would certainly say that that's not necessarily the case. In fact, any times of economic holocaust, which I think is, uh, you know, gold is a barometer of economic problems wherever they may lie, whether it's deflation or inflation. This chart tr pretty dramatically shows that that is, is indeed what has happened. And much of the bull market uh, really got underway uh, through the 1929, but it, it, it didn't even hiccup through the crash from 29 to 32 and ultimately topped out in 1936. So there's some, uh, there's a number of premises that many, uh, I would say, analysts or forecasters go on that really do need reassessing. And it's just this going back in history and proving all things good and holding fast to that which is good, which is vital uh, to market making. And really some, uh, some animals, uh, analysts get into to trouble saying that when there's inflation, gold prices have to go up. That may be indeed be true, but it may also be true that when there's the prospect of runaway inflation is when gold goes up. And when that prospect isn't there, gold doesn't necessarily have to do anything but stay flat. So I, I think it's the prospect of runaway inflation uh, that's going to result uh, in gold again resurging, and it certainly will in the future. And in fact, the, the interesting thing is that much of the talk has been about silver and how that also is an inflation hedge, a poor man's inflation hedge. And historically, it may not be. Mm -hmm. So if you're looking for, for inflation or economic holocaust, your, your move really should be into gold. And silver uh, uh, has an economic value all of its own. And supply and demand do affect that market much more than the gold market does. So there's really some interesting corollaries there, and, and it's hard to, to hold stand and fast. You have to keep your mind open and see, uh, hopefully, what uh, you know, uh, some clear vision. Well, I was around when gold went up like that. So you were? Yes. Rush, that makes you. Uh, let's see. Okay. <laughs> 1936. I was at the university then. Well. The reason it went up was, first, there was a depression, mm -hmm. and people were getting out of uh, paper. There was the threat of Hitler in Europe, and people were abandoning paper currencies for gold. Mm 
And at the same time, Roosevelt raised the price of gold artificially from 19-something to 34 and then, then 35, overpriced it. So that created a tremendous uh, boost for gold. Well, Rush, uh, we're looking for a partner. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the wages aren't good. But <laughs> now, uh, how do you see the future, Russ, the 80s? Well, in terms of, of the silver, which I've done extensive analysis on, uh, and not everybody likes to hear this, it looks to me that we'll see lower prices in the silver uh, until 1991. Now, that's, that's in a broad sense. Bear market rallies, sure. But the type of market that we had in 1980 in the silver uh, was of monumental proportions. It's a market that comes along... For example, like in the stock market, the 1929 bull market occurred, and it's taken 76 years to see a market, and, and I'm comparing this year's market, uh, the last couple of years, to that type of market, although really this is a very, uh, uh, in terms of percentage moves, the 1929 market, this is not even comparable. But uh, the point on, on a market like the silver comes along about every 50 to 60 years, and it seems to take 60 years for the market to wring out the excesses of what occurred. Uh, I guess the real argument right now is, uh, was Nikolai Kondratiev right about his 54-year cycle? And if he was, then we are in a deflationary period, and we may indeed not see a market like uh, what we saw in 1980 in the silver for another 50 years. Um, that dep uh, it's, that's, a, that's a tough one. I, uh, that's a little bit more academic in terms. Uh, I'm a little more interested in what's going to happen in the next 10 years rather than the next 60. But long-term cycles do suggest uh, 1991 as final low in the silver. And uh, the gold market, as I say, they have divorced each other. We have a silver-to-gold ratio at about 63, 64 to 1. And that is historically... I don't believe it's ever, I know it hasn't been that high in this century. I believe in the 1800s it was higher. Uh, so there is precedence that we could see that, that uh, silver to gold ratio uh, move back towards 30 to 1 or whatever is uh, more of a reasonable, well, reasonable, of course, is subjective, but uh, historically normal uh, ratio. So I would, if I was looking for Myself as an investor, if I'm looking for a hedge against economic difficulties and problems, I would definitely go into the gold. Interestingly enough, Friday on the silver, we did hit the March of 85 low. So we are sitting at lows that were put in in March of, of just about a year ago, and yet the gold is $58 above that low. So you have a higher bottom in the gold, and you have silver is absolutely dead in the water, and uh, important strategy in terms of market analysis is you stay with a strong sister. You stay with the strong member of the complex, which means you have to buy the gold as, a, as either an investment or as a speculator. Your emphasis should be on the gold. And uh, in that sense, we could see the gold market move higher from here and the silver market move lower and continue to move uh, uh, the ratio out. Now, this may be a curveball question, but I, I really am interested in knowing something on this. One of the curious facts of uh, economic history is that the market sometimes seems to take on a life of its own, divorced from 
the world around it. For example, in the German inflation of the early 20s, when uh, it took billions of marks to mail a letter across town, uh, people were uh, borrowing money, lending money, going on in the market without any awareness that the most fantastic inflation to that point in all history was underway, and it was going to bring about a collapse. Everybody thought in terms of today and tomorrow in the market. And very often you see that uh, today. Investors are looking on the short term only in terms of what is something going to do today and tomorrow. In fact, I would guess that this has accelerated in the past 20 years so that instead of shares being traded uh, in limited numbers per day, now everybody is continually turning over their shares. They're speculating rather than investing. Yes. Do you have uh, some kind of observation on that general picture? Uh, yes, I do. Uh, Really, the sophistication of the markets, if you want to call it sophistication, it's scary is what it is. What's happened to enable the speculator to uh, speculate on virtually anything, and it is geared more towards the short term. And the whole nature of the markets, it really, the change occurred. Uh, in the 60s, I would have been called a commodity broker. In the 80s, I'm called a futures broker because of the advent of so many financial instruments as vehicles of speculation. And what that includes is ability to trade in the stock index futures, which is simply speculating on which way you think the stock market will go, and doing so in an index, like the S&P 500, or betting on which way the Dow Jones is going to go. You have other financial instruments, which are the interest rate uh, futures would be the T-bills, treasury bonds, euro dollars. Of course, we have the, the euro dollar market has exploded with, uh, with American dollars. An ability to speculate on, on these vehicles. Uh, other things, currency fluctuations. Uh, we have a currency market that's huge. In fact, the futures markets, now when I say futures for, for those who, who don't understand it, what they are are markets where you can put a small amount of money down and control a great deal of assets, and that, that generally runs between 5 and 10% of the asset value. Uh, we have a situation that is the only comparable time would be 1929, and, of course, the speculation ran so rampant in 1929 that uh, uh, following the bear market, they, the SEC was, was instituted and margin requirements were raised to 50%, whereas they'd been as low as 2 to 3% during the bull market. It, it wreaked such havoc on the economic situation. They were compelled to come in and change the, the status quo. Now we have a market 55 years later where we have everything in place that 1920. It makes 1929 look like a stroll in the park. It really does. The, uh, to, to use an example, we have uh, the bond market, which I mentioned, which is the largest futures market. It's a treasury bond, 20-year treasury bonds, U.S. government treasury bonds. And that market alone, and it's a futures market, uh, trades somewhere in the neighborhood of 250,000 to 300,000 contracts a day. 
and the value of each contract is $100,000. And I, mathematically, I can't throw that many zeros after the number to figure out how much money that is. But they do five to six times the dollar gross in a futures contract that they do in the cash market. In other words, you have the cash, which should be the foundation, is the foundation, it's, the, it, it, it's what is behind the futures market being dwarfed by the futures. You wonder, say, well, is the tail wagging the dog or the, the dog wagging the tail, and it's the futures is, is, is the controlling element here. Now, another example is the stock index futures, which came in in 1982, and all of the stock index futures do more dollar volume by a long shot than the stock market does itself. So you do have some very, uh, and nobody knows what's going to happen. They say, well, what, what's, what's going to be the bottom line? What is the ultimate, uh, what's going to happen ultimately as a result of this just plethora of, of financial instruments? And, and that's a good question. Uh, additionally, I, I would just add this, that now they have options on all these futures. So they have taken this to the nth degree, and you hear uh, in your newspapers, you'll hear things like, well, Buy and sell programs in the uh, stock market is, is probably the, the buzzword you hear mostly about in the stock markets and its large funds. Buying the, the actual stocks and selling, say, the futures market against it or unwinding them. and It's really not necessarily to, to know specifically what they're doing, but they talk about buy and sell programs. And what they're doing is trying to take advantage of the differences between the futures index and the actual cash market. So it's, uh, it's awesome. It is really awesome. Uh, I think you have to go back. You say, well, where have we seen in history a situation like this? And you have to go to 1929 to see it. And what was the, uh, uh, the result of it? And they were not very appealing results. So I think that's looking at it realistically. Well, uh, that all brings into focus something I've seen more than once. When I was younger... I recall what happened when a woman became a widow. She sat down with someone she trusted who said, Well, your husband has put his money in some good uh, stocks, some good bonds. I've gone over the portfolio. You can leave things as they are for the rest of your life, and you're secure. Now... In a comparable situation, the widow is told, you'd better go to class once a week. Yes. You had better be in touch with uh, someone you trust so that you can learn what to do and to do it quickly because the whole market is so volatile. I'm almost tempted to say maybe she'd be better off to get it all and put it under her mattress except it's worthless paper <laughs> to begin with and likely to be more worthless before it's over so it does confirm what you said earlier about the fact that we're uh, in a parallel with 29 yes. we're in a very dangerous situation because uh, the widow can no longer relax and be sure that the income is coming in the form of dividends regularly for the rest of her life. It, it really has aggravated the situation, but I am not... I'm concerned, but 
by the same token, I look at markets previously in history and percentage moves. In other words, the Dow Jones looked like many traders in my firm, many of the old stockbrokers that have been around for 40, 50 years, and we have some there, say, I have never seen a market like this before in history, is what they're saying. The Dow Jones goes 18, it's up 40 points one day, down 30 the next, up another 40 the next day. Uh, and and I do shake my head. I, I have gone from the unbiased tact of looking back, and percentage-wise, we have this is an average bull market. There's nothing outstanding about it. It's a nice bull market, nice and orderly. It's not unlike things that we've seen in the past. So by the same token, the volatility uh, in sheer numbers seems great. But volatility in price, is, is uh, there's some normalcy there. So I'll pull back and, and kind of hedge myself in the sense of, well, what are all these financial instruments? What's the, oh, does it is it axiomatic that this is going to lead to some kind of a crack-up? Well, that's possible, but the financial situation of today says that that isn't a problem near term. In other words, where the, the structure is not in danger, even with what is in place of, of running into you know, any kind of real holocaust. Although in the future, uh, uh, if we run, you know, jump back into inflation, these things are going to aggravate the situation a great deal. There are quite a few who feel that we are perhaps only a year and a half away from inflation. So possibly we may be very close to that uh, danger point. Well, Jim, uh, I'd like to take uh, another direction now in our discussion, and I'll begin by referring to one of the favorite passages in Scripture of my wife, Dorothy. She likes the rules of warfare whereby before they went into battle the men were lined up and told if any of you have a wife at home and uh, you're newly married uh, go back to her. If you have a field that you've just bought that needs attention go back there. If you're afraid go back. In other words, only those ready to face the battle were to fight. And I would say the Lord has led us to such a time as this, where if we're not ready to face the very difficult days ahead, we'd better drop dead now because we're not going to take what's coming. You've been in the thick not only of the market, but of a very, very important bit of uh, warfare on the church and state front. Yes. Uh, do you want to tell us about that now, Jim? Well, I'd love to. Uh, I guess the, the best thing to do is to set the scene. I go to a four-square denominational church uh, in Santa Monica, California, and it's located... I've lived in, in Santa Monica, Brentwood, all my life, so uh, we're located on 20th Street just south of Wilshire. And so things were going swingingly well. We have a school there, a high school, and also a weekday Sunday school for children uh, that are preschool. And, of course, the uh, distinction of weekday Sunday school as opposed to daycare center is something that we started with because it is a integral part of our ministry here on 20th uh, in the Foursquare denomination. At any rate, uh, January 14th, what occurred was almost uh, just the pseudo-real, and it really did reek of Gestapo 
uh, type tactics, SWAT team tactics, we were descended upon by perhaps 20 people involved in both all the both the police department, fire department, department of social services, and district attorney's office. And the gist of it was that we were running a daycare center that was not licensed. Now, the scene was absolutely incredible. The, the, the police came over the roofs and climbed the fences. Now, this is in Santa Monica. Uh, some people call it the Republic of Santa Monica, and perhaps rightfully so. At any rate, the police came over the roofs. Uh, they they uh, broke into some of the gates and came into the schoolyard where children were playing. Uh, frightened, to say the least, many of the children. They lined them up against the wall. Uh, some of the children uh, apparently were were vomiting. They were afraid that they were actually going to be shot. Uh, and some of the the district attorney came in with warrants to search everything, to to uh, take documents into his custody, and to essentially shut things down. And as it resulted, uh, they took all the names of the kids, of course. They would not let the parents have their kids without giving them names, addresses, telephone numbers, things of that nature. And uh, uh, how they could do it in such a SWAT-like fashion is anyone's guess when certainly just one police officer, uh, you know, taken to the front door with the uh, Department of Social Services would have, would have sufficed but we suspect there's some people behind it that wanted to see us punished for what we're doing, which is teaching kids in a Christian way. That's uh, Jane Fonda, Tom Hayden country, isn't it? <laughs> yes, uh, Tommy's commies, as they call them there. Well, what uh, has happened on the uh, court front? They've been indicted? They have been indicted, uh, 18 counts uh, for Ron Norris, the pastor, and Linda Norris, the co-pastor, 16 counts. Uh, they were for things anywhere from for violations, some of them safety violations, safety code violations, and, and of course we're not against uh, those type of code things being you know up to snuff. Anyway, for violations such as uh, not having three-quarter inch mats for sleeping, uh, not having enough t toilets for diaper children, uh, things of that nature, and, and each of these counts uh, carries with it a possible $500 fine and six months in jail. So 18 counts, we're looking at possibly nine years in jail and $9,000 fine. And as it's progressed, uh, as it's worked out, we are hoping and working to see that, that the people responsible for this have bit off more than they can chew and they're picking on a church that is very, very strong, both spiritually and politically. Uh, there's a candidate who's running for the 27th district in Congress against Mel Levine uh, named Rob Scribner, and he has contacts up in Sacramento and also in Washington. So it's been a process where the church has gotten out now and said that there is a persecution going on, and our keynote uh, that we have been going by is to make noise, make noise, let people know what's happening here. Let the churches know the different denominations and not just the four square churches, but let churches around the country know and bring media attention to this. And of course it's happening all over the country and they, uh, people need to know. A lot of times this, this things are suppressed and no one knows what's happening and their, their religious liberties are being taken away from under their noses and they don't even know it. 
This church is, by the way, post-millennial and reconstructionist, is it not? It is. I uh, have been a member of the church, not a member, but I've been attending the church since November. And I walked in the door, and Rush, having been uh, uh, listened to you for 10 years and having you as our personal pastor, uh, I had never seen anything like this, an activist church. I walked in the door and sat down, and they blew my socks off uh, talking about things from right to life, people getting out and talking about pro-life issues and, you know, you know, trying to keep people from aborting their babies to people street preaching in Westwood uh, on Friday and Saturday nights and, and bringing, trying to bring converts into the church and getting involved politically, uh, just getting, making noise and trying to make an impact on the situation. And uh, they're situated in a very strategic location in Santa Monica and uh, people are starting to hear the rumblings and one of our elders uh, Bob Hamilton said the other day he thinks that this is the greatest thing that ever happened was this descending by these bureaucrats on our church because it is bringing to light what's going on and you have to take advantage of it the the media attention that we've gotten has been good tremendous and uh, people need to know that there's uh, uh, the these liberties are gradually being eroded and somebody has to make a stand somewhere what about the denominational authorities? What has their reaction been? Well, the media attention scares them. Uh, they have been low profile in terms of, of, of what they've done over the years. And what they feel is that the church should be licensed. And their feeling is, well, there's never been any suppression of, of our religious liberties previously. So why should we expect there to be any? And yet, as the law reads in, in Title 22 of the uh, California Code, State Code, Safety and Health, uh, really is uh, anathema to what we believe spiritually. There, uh, corporal punishment is out of the question. You are not allowed to spank kids in daycare facilities. And even from a philosophical basis, they can determine what materials are used to teach your children. And, of course, they do not want the Bible as the foundation they want their secular humanism as far as curricula and things of that nature. And it's a matter of, I think, the four-square denomination saying, well, they're really not treading too much on our turf right now. If they ever do, then we'll get into the thick of things and get into the battle. And that's not going to work. You have to build your warriors now, and you have to stand for what's right, because even though some of these laws may be inert, they are still written on the statute books, and they can be enforced. Has the denomination issued any kind of statement or ultimatum to Ron Norris, the pastor? They did. They uh, they sent him a letter of termination as far as their pastorship there in the the building and the grounds are owned by the denomination. Also, the uh, the, the house that, that Ron and Linda uh, stay in, and it came at a particularly uh, uh, untimely period. And here we were coming under the scrutiny of the media as far as some of the, uh, a few of the children having been spanked and, and the parents were, uh, had reported it. And here was the denomination stepping back from supporting us altogether and, and terminating the denomination. And we could only think that, wait a minute, this is the denomination cer certainly is situated in Los Angeles and they, 
they're the overseers of perhaps a billion dollars in real estate in various denominations, but the church is us. We're the church here in Santa Monica. The people are the church, not this building, this old termite-infested building. And uh, it, it is just amazing the people that have come to fight with us are the people you wouldn't expect. And the people that have abandoned uh, what we're doing are the people you'd expect to be right behind you. So it really has been a fascinating, um, you know, character type uh, assessment for some of the people that we deal with. A like situation took place in East Point, Georgia, another in Texas, and there are others as well, where churches have had the concerted action of the sheriff's men, uh, the police, uh, a considerable body of armed men descending at times on uh, a handful of women conducting classes mm -hmm. so that uh, very obviously the powers that be regard the Christian church as a major threat and as a key enemy because they certainly have never moved against the mafia with as many uh, officers as they did against your church and others like it. I'm sure there are a lot of mafia men within a stone's throw all through the Westwood and Santa Monica area, but uh, have you ever known of uh, a massive raid on a mafia operation comparable to the raid on the church? I haven't. Uh, we, we don't, it's just beyond our scope of thought to think why they would do what they did and uh, you know what their purpose was in, in doing so. Now we weren't ignorant of the fact that we were violating uh, the code in the sense that we had idea that they were scrutinizing us and saying get the license and we were saying we cannot do that. Um, uh, you know God forbids it and the Bible forbids it and and of course a, a license what it says is that there is an over and an under, and the ability to license is also the ability to prohibit. Mm -hmm. And licensing is the first step in prohibiting a ministry. And the weekday Sunday school that we have is just simply, it is a, a ministry of the church. We teach the same thing to our kids at the weekday Sunday school, Monday through Friday, that we do on Sunday morning. And uh, that's the whole premise. And, and for... they. Of course, the, the, the people that descended on the church have to have known the situation. They had taken pictures, videos of the school, how the school operated, and why they felt they had to come in there with the, the artillery is anyone's guess, uh, and, and it's really tough to speculate on what the motives were, but there are some people that are very angry with what, what, what the Lord is doing in that church, as they will be with all Christians that uh, are doing the proper things. And it is a good sign, I think, that we are doing the appropriate things. And I hope they've stumbled across a stumbling block that's going to cost them dearly and, and wake the Christian community up. We've got to do it. And the more noise we make, the more the authorities are going to come against us. We have to expect that. And uh, and not say, well, why would they do this? Go ahead and do, do it. If, if it's going to get people to wake up and get involved, uh, so be it. And that's the way it has been through history and certainly in the New Testament with Jesus. And we just have to expect it and, and uh, rise up to the challenge. These safety regulations, let me say, 
are so detailed and specific that it is possible to walk into any building and find reasons to shut it down. Yes. In fact, some people have walked into public schools after incidents comparable to the one in Santa Monica and have called attention to numerous violations of the code. It's just a case of nitpicking rather than saying uh, these are things that need to be corrected. We'll give you 90 days to take care of them. I know I was in a trial in Texas of a church which was cited because the nursery had a goldfish bowl and uh, there was no veterinary doctor's uh, certificate of examination, annual <laughs> checkup on uh, the goldfish and supposedly all animals on the premises had to have an annual inspection, inoculation or whatever <laughs> was indicated. Now, the amazing thing is the church lost the case. It's on appeal. I don't know that they will win the appeal, but this mm -hmm. is the kind of thing that's routine across country. The reason for it is they want to condemn the Christians. Any excuse is good enough. Yes. They don't see the absurdity in what they're doing because they are in dead earnest. Anything to get rid of these terrible people, the Christians. Mm -hmm. And, of course, that's the motive in uh, Santa Monica. Have the members uh, stood firm? They have. It's it's really been a, a cohesive effort by the members. Uh, for instance, the the hearings that have occurred, we have had uh, the the entire church uh, group down there with signs and and what have you. We've crowded the courtrooms. I believe one day it was rainy and everybody had gone in there. Uh, financially, some help has been forthcoming and uh, a lot more needs to, to come out. Today the news just broke that uh, uh, we are have signed on uh, Howard Weissman, who was the, the lawyer in the DeLorean case for uh, his drug, uh, drug case. We just signed him on to, um, to work with Ron and Linda in getting the, uh, the charges dropped. And whether there'll be a countersuit, we don't know, but some of the, the parents with children in the school are talking about some some mental anguish. Some many of these kids had nightmares mm -hmm. for days. Uh, some of uh, others couldn't sleep. Uh, others were wondering whether the police were going to come back. I mean, they had their gun, their holsters, their guns apparently were unbuttoned. Some of them, and they came. And so it's it's really is incredible. I believe a countersuit would be good because uh, too often they've been moving in and terrorizing Christians locking churches and doing the sort without anything being done. Now that Christians are beginning to hold these deputies and police officers and other state, local, and federal officers responsible, it's making some of them think twice before they start pushing people around. Yes. So I do hope they will go ahead with it because injustice should not be tolerated. Yes. Even though it's difficult to win in the courts, it still is a way of getting them because uh, they don't like being forced to defend themselves. It isn't cheap.
No, I and I hope that they, uh, I pray they, they picked on the right church. I think they did. They could have picked a lot of churches, and they've really got themselves a problem. Uh, some of the other positive elements that, that, that are occurring now, we do have a bill that's been attached up in Sacramento to uh, uh, by H.L. Richardson is backing it. Yes. And we are looking to get the legislation passed that'll that'll uh, you know omit daycares, Christian mm-hmm. daycares, from the, the the licensing process. Uh, so that will be on the ballot, and we'll see how that goes. But it's it's a start. It's a scratching of the surface. These things have to. Most people don't even know what ti- how Title 22, uh, the safety regulations, read, and it's a it's a horror story when you dig in and you read these. 50-page manuscripts of laws and regulations that nobody takes any time to read. Yes, uh, if, uh, as I indicated earlier, you would take those regulations and apply them to any city, state, or federal agency, you could shut them down. And that's the purpose of these detailed regulations. There are always enough things in such rules to enable you to shut down anything you want to shut down. Uh, This is why uh, the letter of these laws is against the spirit in which they are intended. They are intended supposedly to protect the public, but in reality they do nothing but harm. Uh, It is ironic that uh, not too far south of your church's situation. There has been uh, a case of a, a daycare facility licensed by the state of California, one which received all kinds of awards, and now they're in court for child molestation of a very serious wholesale nature. Yes. And uh, the number of licensed facilities involved in child abuse, in sexual abuse of children, is legion. But this doesn't seem to change uh, these people who advocate controls and licensure. Because it isn't Christian faith they believe that makes a place good, it's their rules and regulations. Yes. It, it really is uh, amazing. We are not averse to uh, building codes, fire codes, codes, those type of things. Certainly, we have to abide by, and that's important that children are protected. But uh, you know, everything from accreditation to licensing doesn't change the people and the principals involved in the school. They, because they have a license, doesn't change them as individuals. If kids are abused, they're going to be abused regardless of whether there's yes. a license. So it, it really is ludicrous, uh, but it's a, it's a war. It is, it's a war out there, and it's a war against the church, and uh, it's a war we have to win. Yes, if we don't, we will be in the same position as the Soviet Union. Legally, this is the direction we're taking, the total control and ultimately abolition of the church and of Christianity. I don't see any difference in the hostility of these people and those of the anti-God people in the Soviet Union. The only difference is we don't have the laws to accomplish all that those people can do. I think there are a great many people in local and federal governments 
who if they could go back to the days of Rome and throw Christians to the lions, they would. They hate Christ. They hate Christianity. They hate the church. They hate everything we stand for. And their venom is incalculable. It is. We, we have to pray for these people. Their hearts yes. have to be changed. And, and prayer is so important. It's uh, one thing to get out and... and uh, you know, to work for the Lord, but we really have to, uh, you know, get down in, in relationship with Him and find out what He wants to do. And these people's hearts have to be changed uh, for victory, and, and uh, uh, I think they will be. But it's going to take a very large effort, and uh, that's it's important that spiritually, you know, we work through through God also, and and uh, uh, you know, listen intently on what He wants us to do here. Have any people left the church since this began? Well, I, I guess this was before my time. The real purging in the church occurred two years ago, uh, from what I understand, and that's when the church got involved uh, politically and said, we're not going to abide by this you know, separation of church and state. We're going to get some Christian leaders in, in government, and we're not going uh, to take this. And a lot of people took offense to that, and apparently the church uh, was, was halved. Uh, from what I understand, but as far as the people that are there now, these people are a real stronghold and behind the church and Ron and Linda, a hundred percent. And uh, um, yeah, I feel very glad that I am too. I, I just, uh, I think that's it's just tremendous. It's a, it's a great honor, uh, in a sense, to attend the church and people that are so, um, uh, you know, so active and they really are. You, there's no sitting around. <laughs> And saying, well, abortion—it's inevitable, and it's—it's it's the law, you know. To heck with it. We'll let it all go. We've got to get out there and change the law, and that's just one. And there's many of them. And I think all the members in the church feel that way. I know they do. And there has not been a rift in the church. If anything, it has worked as a kind of a cohesive uh, type thing that's brought people together for a common cause and one that's important. And sometimes we we just live in a world that is. Most all of us, it's just a lap of luxury, and it's easy to say, well, you know, the states are making some small inroads on our individual liberties and religious liberties, and it's no big deal, and we'll be there when it, it matters. But this is, uh, it's important right now. It's, mm -hmm. it's vital right now, and I think the people in the church, our church, realize that and are taking the necessary steps, and, and uh, uh, the, the gravity of the situation uh, is something that I pray the Lord will just keep impressing upon me because it is a grave situation. I think one thing that needs to be stressed here is that uh, cases like this are taking place all over the country. And all of us need to be involved. We need to pray for these persecuted peoples. We need to attend the trials and lend our moral support. We need to contribute to the legal defense of these people because a trial costs a great deal. Yes. It takes from 50 to 100,000 on the first step, just in the local court. And with appeals, it mounts astronomically. So this makes it uh, an expensive proposition to defend yourself. But if we don't, we will be destroyed. As a result, I do feel that uh, everyone who hears us should be 
ready to support those in their area who are persecuted, to support the Rutherford Institute, which is fighting these cases all over the country, and to be in prayer about the many cases now in court all the way up to the Supreme Court level. Our religious freedom is very, very seriously threatened in this country. I could go on about the cases that I personally am involved in, but there isn't the time. Our time, in fact, is just about over, so that if you have a last statement you'd like to make, Jim, uh, this is the time. Well, Rush, I'd just like to say it's a real pleasure to uh, to have this type of ministry to get out to people, and I really appreciate being able to, to speak with you and, and uh, really some of the issues that are important with each of the individuals that you, you have on the tape ministry. You know, getting people to understand this and getting the word out is the biggest thing. And it's funny how with our church it really is a leveraging thing, and when you can get two people to become as active as you are in making noise, it can really be a leveraged thing, and it's like a pyramid scheme. And what's happened in our church, it's a small church of 150 people, but it has reached out to thousands and thousands of people just by the efforts of each of those individuals in there. And you have to, to, to look at it that you as an individual can be effective and do something. You really can. You have to leverage your time through people and take the time to explain to people what's happening, why, uh, what are the laws, and what they can do about it. And in so doing, you can make so so much noise that it, you will cause the bureaucrats fits, and that's what's happening with us. We need to na- need to make a lot more noise, and uh, and focus people's attention. But you know, it's easy to say, well, there's nothing we can do. Uh, there's things we can do right now, and we need to do them. Yes, there's another church, uh, sister church to yours, not too many miles away, with five or six thousand members, which is no threat to the state because all it's interested in is pious gush. And yet, your little group is a threat to the powers that be in ways we haven't even gone into tonight because of their political involvement, yes. because they're shaking up people. They're saying you've got to make a stand for Christ in education, in politics, in every sphere. Well, as we relate our faith to the whole of life, we're going to frighten the powers that be. Amen. Because the power of the Lord is with those who make a stand. Our time is up. It's been good to have you with us, Jim. And I trust all of you who are listening will make these matters a matter of prayer and effort on your part. Thank you and God bless you all. Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by Christrules.com.